0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory for our public evening lecture series for the spring 2013 semester. It's a beautiful night here in Tucson, Arizona. We also welcome those of you who are listening to this podcast on the World Wide Web via iTunes U or streaming from as.arizona.edu. So, This is the fourth lecture for our series. Uh, For those of you who have not been here to a previous lecture this semester, we are starting to compile an email list so that we can get you direct communication from Stewart Observatory on the latest public talks and public events. So if you have not yet signed up for our email list, uh, at the end of the lecture, you can sign up. There's a sign-up sheet on the table at the back that you can give us your email address and name, and we can make sure that we get you all public information uh, on events here at Stuart Observatory. Uh, as well, there is a flyer. We have three more lectures, including our 90th, anniversary celebration on April the 22nd and I'm planning several fun things for that night so I hope you can all join us on that night celebrating the 90th birthday of Stewart Observatory Uh, before we introduce tonight's speaker I would like to remind those students who are here for uh, an assignment I am the person who will stamp your notes or whatever verification form you have at the end of the question and answer period. I'll do it at this table down here. And second of all, it is a clear night. So the Raymond E. White Jr. Reflector is open for public viewing. I was just up there, it's open and ready for business. If you've never been here before, it's the white building with the big white dome on top. It's the original Stewart Observatory, the building that's 90 years old, and you're free to walk up two flights of stairs, and there are friendly undergraduate astronomy majors that will point the telescope to wherever you want to look at, as long as it's up in the sky. So, especially Jupiter's up tonight, so you wanna make sure that you uh, look through that telescope if you haven't yet. Uh, We are very pleased tonight to have uh, Dr. Ann Sprague, uh, one of our colleagues from our sister institution across the street, the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. Um, Everyone makes a big deal about Pluto, okay? I know it was all in the news back in 2005, but I've always maintained that the most underappreciated planet is Mercury, right? Nobody talks about Mercury. Of all the naked eye planets, it's the one that's hardest to see. And if you can name all the planets you've seen in the sky with your own eyes, probably Mercury's the one that you haven't seen. Because it's hard to see. It's always near the sun. But yet, it holds a lot of mysteries. And so that's the reason why I invited Anne to give this lecture. Because five years ago, we sent a mission to Mercury called the Messenger Mission, and that was the first time we had sent anything to Mercury since the Mariner days of of 1960s and early 70s. So uh, we learned a lot about the planet, and so I asked Anne to come here tonight to tell us the latest understanding that we have of the nearest planet to the sun, Mercury. Without further ado, Dr. Anne Sprague. Oh, no, I have to tell you where she came from. That's right, Dr. Sprague received her bachelor's degree in geology from Syracuse University. She's an orange woman, right. Then she received a master's degree in astronomy from Boston University, and uh, she has spent a lot of her professional life doing, making telescopic observations, both from the ground and from the Kuiper Airborne Observatory, which in the 80s was this uh, uh, NASA t- uh, airplane that was up high in the atmosphere, that was above the water vapor uh, to make uh, uh, infrared observations, long wavelength infrared observations of Mercury. And she is a contributing scientist to the MESSENGER program, and she is with the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. She received her PhD right here at the University of Arizona in Planetary Sciences. Without further ado, Dr. Sprague.
1: wonderful introduction. How's the sound? Good. All right. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I don't get a chance to talk about Mercury to people who really want to know that often. You can't hear me? I have the microphone right here. Um, I will keep talking until we adjust the volume properly. How is that? Is that better? Okay, great. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, <clears throat> the MESSENGER mission to Mercury uh, was designed, uh, built, and uh, launched all, it, through the discovery program, the NASA Discovery Program, which I'm, you probably know has sent several missions to Mars. Um, <clears throat> the PI of the, whoops, Tom, don't desert me. <laughs> Just
0: go ahead and click the trigger.
1: I wanna go back. Okay. Um, The PI of the messenger mission um, started out at Carnegie Institute in Washington. Just
0: be careful not to press that. That's like right click. So you want to press here and here. Okay. Okay.
1: Don't go away. Okay. All right. (laughs) All right. Here we go. So he started out at Carnegie. And now he is at Columbia University in the city of of New York, and his name is Sean Solomon. And um, the main driver for him to be the PI of this mission is the mystery of why Mercury had a magnetic field when it is such a small planet, and should have chilled and solidified leaving no interior molten core. Not only did uh, he focus on um, just studying the core, but the mission has a whole suite of very capable instruments, which have made many wonderful discoveries since the three flybys in 2008. Now, like um, Dr. Fleming said, uh, most people never see mercury. But you can see Mercury at night and in the morning. You just really have to know where to look. And it will always be in the uh, red, uh, dusty, low portion of the sky. And um, it will be difficult to see. But as this picture right here shows Mercury. Saturn in the night sky. This was taken by a friend of mine, Rick Hill, who now works with the Catalina Sky Survey years ago. But you can see Mercury if you know where to look and take the time to do so. Mercury is a very interesting planet for many reasons, but one of the most important things is that it has a three, a resonance of Uh, spinning on its axis, day and night, three times for every two times it goes around the sun. And we call this a 3-2 spin orbit coupling. In two years, it will make, in two Mercury years, it will make two orbits. That's the definition of a year, of course, is an orbit around the sun. And it will make three rotations. But as a consequence of this peculiar way of spinning and orbiting, the same longitudes are always beneath the sun at perihelion. Perihelion is when Mercury is closest to the sun. So the same longitudes alternate. Zero degree longitude and 180 degree longitude are always under the sun when Mercury is closest to the sun. That means the temperatures at those longitudes are very, very hot. And conversely, the temperatures at 90 degrees longitude and 270 degrees longitude are always under the sun at aphelion, that is, when Mercury is farthest from the sun. So those two longitudes are cooler. I can't say they're cold, because Mercury is only, varies from 0.32 AUs to 0.46 AUs, where an AU is an astronomical unit. And you know, you probably, some of you know, an astronomical unit is the average distance of the Earth to the sun. So Mercury's hot. And the messenger spacecraft had to be designed to withstand that heat, and to keep the instruments protected through the duration of the mission. From ground-based observing, people were doing rather well about the time the mission began. In fact, um, very uh, clever astronomers with uh, small telescopes between, oh, 20 and 24 inches, we're starting to get images using image stabilization and a technique of taking rapid pictures very, very short and then co-adjusting them to stack on one another. We're starting to actually discover some of the features on the planet and then, Along came Messenger and um, improved things. In fact, improved things over the uh, Mariner 10 imagery that was obtained in the three flybys in 1974 and 1975. Up until Messenger, these were the very best images available and Professor Strom, who's a professor emeritus from uh, the at the Lunar Planetary Laboratory, was on the Mariner mission to Mercury, and um, studied these images. And he's also on the Messenger mission to Mercury, and he's now is getting to study the much higher resolution uh, images and multicolor images taken by Messenger. So that's very exciting for him. He always used to say, oh, I'm never going to live long enough to get on the messenger mission. But he did, and he's doing very well and really enjoying it. So the primary mission, the primary orbital mission, um, is two solar days or four Mercury years. A solar day, a day and night period on Mercury lasts um, 167 Earth days. It's 86 days, Earth days of daylight and 86 Earth days of nighttime. So it gets really, really cold down to 75 Kelvin on the night side and very, very hot at the subsolar point, up to seven hundred twenty-five Kelvin in the daylight. So the uh, a, a lander would be a very difficult thing to do, and um, the spacecraft is in an orbit that uh, often uh, stays above the terminator, and then the and then the uh, planet uh, spins under it. And the the uh, solar panels always have to be toward the sun, and they protect the instruments. Okay, I just have a a very short movie. The mission has been very successful in that it has imaged the entire surface but for a small little bit, you'll see, coming around right here in the North Pole. And it has imaged Mercury in very high um, resolution. This is false color. There are f- basically four different color units on mercury, which I will now tell you about. I'll start from darkest and then go to lightest. There are these very dark regions which are, have been coated dark blue And we do not know what the minerals are of these dark regions. But we're working on it. Then there are these medium blue regions. These are called um, the low reflectance terrains. And we do not know what the minerals are of those regions either. And then there are these somewhat bright regions. And we're pretty sure that there's a lot of plagioclase feldspar in those bright regions and of the particular type of plagioclase of albite, that's the sodium rich kind. And then there are these really, really bright regions here here what they are is fresh excavations from recent craterings oh there's five types i'll get the so just the, look at these white ones right now and those are fresh excavations and we think but we do not know but we think that that is Uh, excavation into a layer of enstatite. And enstatite is a magnesium orthopyroxene, which with no iron is bright white. And then there are these bright little orange regions and they are pyroclastics. So we've discovered volcanism on mercury and the pyroclastics are likely uh, to be rich in uh, sulfur, and of course they'll be glass, uh, but iron free. Turns out that the surface of mercury uh, is almost iron free. Oh. Okay, I'll just play that movie one more time so you can see those spots as they come around. This is Caloris Basin, that big thing there. And Caloris Basin and the Northern Plains are roughly the same composition, um, <clears throat> but we don't know what it is quite yet. Okay. But a great deal of progress has been made. and. I'll now take you through some of this progress. There was a raging debate after Mariner 10 as to whether the plains, the smooth plains, which occupy uh, 26% of Mercury's surface area were volcanic or ejecta blankets because Mercury's highly impacted. And now we know that it's volcanism. It's lava flows big lava flows. But the interesting thing is, is there are no shield volcanoes, such as uh, there are on Mars. There are no uh, volcanoes like the Hawaiian chain of volcanoes on Earth. The, these huge lava flows come out of cracks, uh, scarps at, in Mercury's surface and flow over broad regions. We know that, there, that mercury is magnesium-rich. So we can infer what, what the mineralogy is based on the fact that we know it's magnesium. And we know that from the X-ray fluorescence data, which I will be showing you soon. And minerals, silicates, I mean, it's a pretty good guess that mercury's surface is silicate. Looks like it's a silicate planet. Um, So silicates with a lot of magnesium are uh, the most common one is pyroxene, that enstatite that I told you about, which is bright white if it has no iron. Well then you might wonder why all those regions are so dark if they have a lot of enstatite. Well, they're so dark because there's something else we are not positive about yet, but it is not iron, which is making them dark. And in the older units, it's only the really fresh units that are still white. Uh, Mercury is so close to the sun, and it gets all bombarded by uh, protons and and heavy ions, uh, helium plus and hydrogen plus, and... There's a lot of calcium ions coming from the sun and so forth, and that ion bombardment darkens the surface, even a nice, white, fresh surface. Now, the name for um, the kind of rock that is largely magnesium-rich lava flows is comadiite. Comadiites are made up of feldspar, and pyroxene, and a little olivine. And if there is olivine on the surface, it's a magnesium rich olivine, it's not going to have much iron in it. Now, the mariner discovered very well the density of mercury and um, Turns out that Mercury was for uh, compared when compared to the other planets the densest planet, and so it was hypothesis that, hypothesized that it was extremely iron rich must have a large iron core, and um, probably even a high iron surface. the moon, as we know has between 3 and, oh, 16% iron oxide. And uh, many people just assumed mercury would be the same. But ground-based astronomers knew that was not the case and um, published many, many papers about how mercury's surface was iron poor and the signature of the well-known iron oxide Fe2+, band that makes a nice absorption at one micron just was missing and all the mid-infrared only showed magnesium silicates but you know how these mission people are you don't know anything if it's not known from except by the mission right so going into this whole thing it's as if the whole ground-based astronomical communities publications somehow disappeared and it all had to be learned again. But it has been learned again. Mercury's surface has less than one weight percent iron, even though all the micrometeorites are, you know, many little iron micrometeorites and IDPs and so forth impact the surface. So the iron from those impactors must be Uh, reaching very high temperatures, some of it must be coming in very fast, and the iron is volatilizing and escaping, ionizing and escaping in the electric fields of the magnetic field of mercury. Okay, so what is the new view? Well, the new view of mercury is (laughs) that it does have a volcanic crust, quite thin, that has to be easily penetrated, and that it's got a mantle that has got to be uh, um, heterogeneous. And and, um, what do I mean by heterogeneous? I mean that uh, the impactors that are of the same depth at different locations on the surface are penetrating different um, rock types. So if if an impactor penetrates uh, to the top of the mantle here, or let's say over here, um, they, even though it's still the mantle, it will be, might be a different rock type. So the mantle is heterogeneous, dif- of different composition at at different locations around the planet. Now that there's imagery to actually study the uh, topology and morphology of the surface, um, one, people can um, now, actually discover uh, vents. Some of these vents that I talked about. And notice that the terrain is quite flat. It's not like a, a, a true volcano like we have on Earth, like Mount St. Helens or something that you know blows the top off and the, vul- and the lava flows down the sides and so forth. It kind of oozes out of vents and flow directions have been defined and basins, ancient um, impact craters have been uh, buried by rather deep lava flows. Some lava flows are as deep as several tens of kilometers. Another very interesting thing about mercury is that um, the discovery of extensional cracks—that is to say, graben—if you have um, faults that where the ground opens up and makes lower uh, linear features, they're called graben, and Mercury has a lot of them, and that was not known until the higher resolution imagery came back from messenger in fact it was a big surprise because what was known from the messenger mission was that mercury had went had when it cooled shrunk and it had this huge scarp this huge fault where when it when it cooled and shrunk You know, one set of rocks went over the other set of rocks and made this huge scarp around, oh, a a third of the distance of the circumference of the planet. And so everyone expected many, many compressional features, but no extensional features. And quite to the contrary, Uh, The imagery has shown that there are these extensional features and many of these, um, well, there's not one in this picture, but there was one in this previous picture, uh, these vents in the extensional features where the lavas came out quite uh, copiously, actually. One of the most uh, dramatic set of extensional features is this one in Caloris Basin. And everywhere are extensional features in Caloris Basin. So what must have happened in Caloris, and it's still being worked out, um, is that an enormous impactor came in. excavated out material, would have thrown it out. And uh, then perhaps that instigated some volcanic uh, activity and the, the lavas filled the basin. And as the terrain, when the impactor came in, and then as it relaxed, the rocks rebounded, from uh, the excavation of all that material coming out of the big giant Caloris Basin, then it raised up that lava pool as it was cooling and resulted in this array of extensional features. Rather interesting, landform that is not on other planets. And this crater just serendipitously seems to be at the convergence of all of these uh, graben, but it, it did not cause these graben. These graben are not related to this impact crater, which is kind of interesting. And you can see the ejecta blanket coming from this impact crater here. Okay, so there's also another new uh, landform on Mercury that isn't on other planets. And there, we have named them hollows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the reason for that? Well, because they're all these irregularly shaped depressions which have some material in them that seems to be associated with volcanism and uh, also a material which is not related to the surrounding terrain. So it's sulfides of some kind, maybe sulfates, although not too likely to be sulfates because sulfates um, are pretty oxidized, and mercury is very sulfur rich. It's a very reduced environment. Uh, the M- Mars is very oxidized. It's red, like, like iron oxide, like rust, everywhere. But mercury doesn't have that oxygen. It's got sulfur, so it's very dark. And all those dark materials are somehow related to sulfur, but we don't quite know how. We don't know if it's calcium sulfide, magnesium sulfide, um, manganese calcium sulfide, zinc sulfide, chromium sulfide, we don't really know. Um, And why don't we know? Well, there's the instrument there to tell, there's the X-ray spectrometer, but the sun has been very quiet during the messenger mission. It has not been um, giving off a lot of coronal mass ejections and X-ray flares and things that you need to have to stimulate the little atoms, the heavy atoms in the rocks and minerals on mercury to excite the electrons into the outer shells so they can give off the x-rays so that the x-ray spectrometer can determine what element they are. And we had a really wimpy solar max during the messenger mission. And now we're in a solar min and it's not likely that we're ever going to do better than we have already done before the mission ends, which is in about one Earth year. Okay, but all that aside, um, the high resolution imagery has been really marvelous uh, because the MDIS camera had 11 wavelengths uh, uh, filters, 11 filters, one calibration filter and 10 color filters. And so uh, by taking um, ratios of one color to another and by stretching and enhancing the imagery, um, we're able to see that there's a lot of, of uh, difference from one location to another on the planet and this really dark stuff um, Some some of the scientific team thinks it's carbon Uh, I thought it was manganese for a long time, but the XRS measured one location on Mercury's surface and uh, There was not measurable manganese at that location. That doesn't mean there's not measurable manganese somewhere else, but it didn't really help my cause too much. Um, this almost certainly, not just because it's, it's yellow, but this almost certainly uh, indicates sulfides from these pyroclastic emanations that are coming out. And um, we now finally, at this point, after a full uh, Mercury year, and we're into the second Mercury year now, uh, have maps. Not complete maps, mind you, but uh, pretty good maps of uh, major elements. This is the magnesium map. And these white dots are all of these hollows, these strange locations where, uh, they are like Yellowstone almost. Have you, you know, if you go to Yellowstone, and and only not with the geysers, there's no water, there's no hot water geysing out or anything. But you know how Yellowstone has those pits and holes, and, and um, and sulfur, and other minerals, strange minerals. Well, that's, that's what these hollows are like, only you just have to eliminate the concept of anything that's oxidized. No water, no CO, no CO2. And um, I noticed that some regions, um, uh, this, this is plotting, these colorful maps are plotting the ratio of a major element, magnesium to silicon. Now the gamma ray spectrometer did in fact make a map of silicon, but the problem is there's no absolute calibration. So you just have to guess. You have to say, well, these are mafic minerals. These are minerals that have a lot of magnesium in them and so probably the silicon is about 24 weight percent. And then once you do that, then you divide the signal of the other elements like magnesium by the signal of silicon. And then you can come up with a magnesium to silicon ratio. And this is 0.16, 0.31, 0.47, 0.63, 0.78, 0.94. So the magnesium rich rocks are here, up here, at 0.94 ratio, and the magnesium poor rocks are are these blue and purpley ones up here in the northern plains and in the Caloris area. Now, this time, this map doesn't have hollows. This map just has the outlines of the plains, the smooth plains. Mm-hmm. So everywhere, like that's a lava, lava flow or lava infill. This is, these are huge flows, huge lava flows. And Then these are little lava flows and so forth, okay? Um, <clears throat> and this is the iron map. Now this is where the ground-based astronomers would you know, like to, told you so, but can't really do that. Except in a public lecture. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is the ratio of iron to silicon. And this is 0.01, 0.02, 0.04, 0.05, 0.06, 0.07. The highest iron abundance is 0.06 in the ratio. So it's less than 1.6% anywhere here by weight. And keep in mind on Earth and the moon, you know, there are locations on Earth where it's 16% by weight. And aluminum this is an interesting map because it's low also low Um, much higher than iron this goes all the way up to 0.46 ratio to silicon but the but it's low if you uh, if you were doing that at the moon that number up here instead of being let's say this 0.38 typical on the moon would be much higher than that, four times that. And that's because lunar feldspar is calcium rich feldspar called anorthite, but mercury feldspar is sodium rich feldspar called albite. And there's other types in between, which we won't get into. And the point is that if you've got sodium in the lattice, then it takes less aluminum to fill out the whole lattice structure. If you have calcium in the lattice, it takes more aluminum to fill out the feldspar structure. So a low aluminum surface is highly um, indicative of a sodium rich surface. Which makes a lot of sense because ground-based astronomers have been looking at sodium in the exosphere of Mercury for, well it was discovered in 1985 by Andrew Potter who used the McMath-Pierce Solar Telescope on Kip Peak and a team of people who worked with him at NOAO. And I, did my dissertation work on Mount Bigelow with a high-resolving power echelle shell spectrograph studying the sodium and potassium in Mercury's exosphere. So what's an exosphere? It's a very, very, very thin atmosphere. You know, the Earth's atmosphere is one bar. Mercury's atmosphere is a pico bar or maybe five or six pico bars. Pico meaning 10 to the minus 12. So (laughs) 0.000001 bars. So it's very very thin. About three ton trucks, three one ton trucks worth of sodium and two one-ton trucks worth of potassium, all in ballistic orbits around the planet, coming from, probably, coming from that albite and coming from those sulfides, from those hollows. There's probably sodium in those sulfides. And, But Messenger has discovered more things in the exosphere, too, and we'll get to that. So maybe there's um, 10 picobars, but I don't know what minus 11 is. Order of magnitude 10 to the minus 11? Does anyone know a name for that? I don't. (laughs) Okay. So sort of a summary and, and an implication now. You must be wondering like, oh, she's raging on about the composition of the surface. Why do we care? Well, we care why, how Mercury formed. You know, it, it's, it's the closest planet to the sun. It's a rock, a very unusual rock, very different than the earth or the moon. And, um, you know, Pluto, well, Pluto used to be a planet. Um, uh, the planets, the outer planets are, are uh, icy and filled with gaseous things like ammonia and nitrogen and, um, and carbon dioxide and, and um, in the gaseous state. Mercury, the big question is did Mercury form close to the Sun where it is or did it form in the asteroid belt and get bounced into the inner solar system or is it a chip off of a larger terrestrial planet like maybe a chip off of Earth or something? Well, I think it's looking pretty clear now that it's unique. It's not something that got bounced in toward the Sun from out by Mars. It's nothing like Mars. It's nothing like Earth. It's nothing like Jupiter. So, it looks like we do in fact have an end member planet. That's the jargon that planetary scientists use. You have Mercury at one end and then you have the outer planets out there, then you you seek to explain why they all are as they are based on the distance from the sun. Well, one thing we've learned now is that mercury is a lot like enstatite chondrites in its composition. Now, enstatite is that mineral I told you about, that magnesium-rich pyroxene that's white with no iron, and a chondrite is a kind of meteorite that has chunks of um, primitive material that's not been processed and, and they're called chondrules. And so these meteorites uh, probably uh, pounded into one another and formed mercury because mercury's composition is an awful lot like those enstatite chondrites. So that's, that's a big uh, um, step ahead for our knowledge of the innermost planet. And it's a result of the messenger mission. There was speculation that that was true before this mission, but now we have much more than just speculation. Okay, we knew from Mariner 10 that there was a magnetic field around Mercury. And very odd to say, it was like the Earth's dipolar. Um, you know, if you have a bar magnet and you, you, know, you put it under a sheet of paper and you sprinkle iron filings on it, and you shake the paper, you know, then the iron filings go up. It'd come down and go up to the other end of the magnet, right? It's kind of seen that sometime in a way. Okay. Well, that's called a dipolar field. And, what oh, it was a big surprise for Mercury to have that because, after all, Mercury um, is a little stony planet. It should have uh, cooled off and frozen and not have any molten mantle to, for a dynamo. Because we think the Earth's dipolar magnetic field is caused by a dynamo from a solid core rotating inside a liquid layer. That's the speculation. Has not been proven, by the way, but that's what we think. Well, Mercury must have that, too, if that's what causes a dipolar field and um and but however the the uh, strength of mercury's magnetic field is about a tenth of that of the earth but the morphology is similar the solar wind uh what those particles the particles coming from the sun uh are held away from most of the planet by this magnetic field. Now, these, uh, these lines are imaginary, right? But it's a nice schematic way of illustrating that there are electric fields moving around and causing uh, magnetic fields. And the ions that have been discovered around mercury are, I haven't put the plus signs on here. Strictly speaking, an ion would have a one or two plus signs to indicate that it's, they've lost electrons off of their atoms. But anyway, hydrogen, helium, magnesium, sodium, oxygen, silicon, calcium, and potassium have all been discovered in the orbiting around in these fields, actually creating the electric fields too. Because if you have a moving ion, you're creating an electric field. Well, the big discovery now from the extended orbit that we're in, we just got an extra year at uh, Mercury. Um, Thank you very much, taxpayers. It's greatly appreciated. (laughs) Um, I mean it sincerely. I mean, I think my, I love my tax dollar going to space missions. No place I'd rather have it go. Anyway, we've discovered that um, if you look down at Mercury's North Pole, uh, the field lines uh, come out Pretty close to the North Pole. It's just a little, little region here with no magnetic field. But if you look at the South Pole, it's quite different. There's a big region on the South Pole with no magnetic field. And that has implications for how the solar wind. Uh, darkens the surface of Mercury, and the peculiar thing is that it doesn't seem to work quite right because the speculation is that solar wind particles darken, but the northern plains on Mercury are lighter than the southern plains the albedo of them. So we're learning something. We're learning that standard explanations for what, how the solar wind interacts with rocks and minerals are not bearing up under the data obtained from the messenger mission and from the uh, color of the rocks. Now, let's just because we can and i have this new power i know how to do this Get the space bar. ha thank you <laughs> okay let's look at this now so the northern region is higher albedo. That means brighter in reflectance. Over quite a large area. Now it's true that the southern uh, polar area also is, is light but not as light or as extensive in in light rock as the north so you, we absolutely cannot any longer say that this is dark because you know the solar uh, or that the poles will be darker because the solar wind hits them and the body of the planet will be lighter because it's protected by the magnetic field absolutely can't say that anymore so that's, that's a very nice, interesting thing now that people c- can explain, perhaps. Okay. So it, what it really means is that the rock type is different. And to heck with the whole hypothesis of space weathering, that doesn't work. Okay, now, the spacecraft also took uh, measurements of the exosphere, had an instrument on it to take exospheric measurements, and they're very complicated. The the, The way the instrument has to view the exosphere is very difficult, and there have to be very clever young people to analyze the data. You know, really clever young people, young people, who can still learn new computer techniques and 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 um, you know design clever ways to to look at the data. So this is a sodium map. I told you about sodium being discovered right here at Kitt Peak, but The uh, messenger mission actually measured the sodium streaming out behind Mercury. And where it's bright green means the most brightest and most concentrated sodium atoms. And then it tapers off as it streams down behind the planet as the planet goes around the sun. and calcium's been discovered, and a lot of it. And its distribution is also patchy and not uniform. That's in the exosphere, not on the surface. And there are are two places it can come from. It can come from the rocks or it can come from the sun. The sun actually puts out quite a lot of calcium and it, and it bangs under the surface, plants in the regolith and then, and then um, as, the, as mercury goes around the sun it bakes out again. And then another really big exciting thing that was discovered from ground-based radar was these um, bright spots. They're shown here as yellow. In in the radar images, they look like this. And um, right away, people, all of us were totally amazed because this is in the northern polar area of Mercury, true, but still Mercury is only 0.3 AU from the sun, so it's still very hot even at the North Pole. How could water ice be there? Because this is the, the reason people thought it was water ice was because if you look at Mars in radar, that's what the polar caps look like on Mars. and um, so, gee whiz, can that really be water ice? Well, I personally thought it might be sulfur, and um So that was a big debate. Water ice, sulfur, or something else. Whatever it is, it has to be highly reflective to radar. So, MESSENGER threw data from three instruments to analyze this the neutron spectrometer, the um, laser altimeter, and. Ugh, I'm blocking what the third one was right now. When I think of it, I'll tell you. OK, this is the laser altimeter. And what it does is it um, it has a time of flight. It measures the time it takes the laser to reflect off the surface. And it can do both reflectivity and topography. That's what this. Schematic is supposed to show a mountain range here and the laser altimeter measuring it. And by combining the data from the laser altimeter and the um, the neutron spectrometer, uh, it's pretty looking a lot like water ice. And uh, water ice covered with carbon compounds. Organic compounds, dark organic compounds. So maybe those darkest regions in those movies are organic compounds. Oh that's just very hard to explain and um, a very exciting uh, Definitely worthy of another mission with a new suite of instruments to explain that. So it is looking like water ice covered with hydrocarbons. Now this is just a little summary. The mission's not over, it's going to go another year Six out of seven instruments are working well. The gamma ray spectrometer kind of had a uh, overheated, and six months ago we lost the gamma ray spectrometer, but it still made maps of uranium and thorium, potassium, and sodium. There's plenty of fuel left, and uh, there are still more questions to answer, And what I've done is I've just given you my perspective of the most exciting discoveries and uh, questions that we had when we went into the mission. And I I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed the talk.
0: Thank you, Ann. We do have time for any questions that you may have. We have one right here. I have a couple, of, uh, a couple of questions. One, is there any way to tell the age of the features that we see on Mercury? And number two, I noticed there was a large asymmetry between the North and Southern Hemisphere on the mineral con- concentrations, such as aluminum and uh, iron. Does that have to do with the asymmetry of the magnetic field?
1: The ages are pretty well known. All of the uh, cratering, the majority of the cratering happened three billion years ago or, or four billion years ago. You know, the planet's probably four and a half billion years or give or take like the Earth. And um, the initial uh, freezing of, the, of the, man, the mantle overturn and the formation of the crust and the initial bombardment of... Uh, cratering, probably all occurred in the first two billion years. And only recent small craters made those fresh excavations that look bright white. And by recent, you know, in the last billion years, the last 500 million years, yeah. oh no, no, the lava flows. I would say are between three and two billion years. I don't think we have any evidence for recent lava flows. But some of those pyroclastic vents and some of those hollows don't look so old. They don't have degraded edges, you know, they have sharp edges. But, you know, but, uh, but I don't know, we don't know how old they are. now. The reason the x-ray maps look funny, are like there's a northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere difference, is only because that's all that got measured. Yeah, it's no data, Yeah, only the bright colors were data. Everything else was unknown.
0: We have a couple questions here, it will be you and then you.
1: Is there uh, much of an aurora of any kind? Um, in, in, a, in a strict sense, uh, yes. Strictly speaking, in that in an aurora is an emission from electrons changing levels and giving off photons, yes. But when you know how thin the atmosphere is, um, and I don't think it's thick enough to have an aurora in the sense of a terrestrial, aurora borealis or aurora australis, because that's when you have charged particles streaming in the magnetic field and hitting the upper atmosphere and making the atmosphere like the nitrogen green glow and the, oxid, uh, the ozone and so forth. Uh, and the Mercury's atmosphere isn't thick enough to do that. The, the emissions are uh, caused by um, uh, solar photons causing the electron excitement, not charged particles. I believe. We have a question here. Okay, I noticed when you're comparing the compa- composition of Mercury to other bodies that Venus was conspicuous by its absence. Is that due to the lack of data on Venus or is it that similar to Earth? Um, Venus for sure has a lot of basalt flows. Now, The only reason I say for sure is because there was that Russian lander that pretty much got one measurement and a picture that looked a lot like basalt. Um, Mercury, strictly speaking, isn't a basalt in the true sense of the word. A basalt is feldspar, olivine, and um, pyroxene and Mercury doesn't seem to have all of it. Okay, Venus um, has metallic rains on its mountaintops. Um, Iron rains out and covers mountaintops and stuff. Now that, I have just told you everything I know about Venus's surface composition. (laughs) And that's why it was conspicuously absent.
0: Any other questions?
1: Iron. Iron Iron, metal. Rain.
0: Yes, we have another question here. (laughs) Just a simple one. What is the strength of
1: the gravity on Mercury as compared to Earth? 32 centimeters per second squared. And the the Earth is what, 988 centimeters Mm, per second squared? Something like that. Yeah, we tiny. (laughs) Is the Stuart Laboratory? observatory involved in any way in the tracking of asteroids? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, maybe, maybe uh, Professor Fleming can answer that better than I can, but the Lunar and Planetary Lab has the Catalina Sky Survey, you know, which has been discovering asteroids for now, what, 10 years? Yeah. The, the primo, primo asteroid discovery center in the world now.
0: Up on Mount Lemmon. But in addition to that, there's the Space Watch program, which is still in existence, started by Tom Garrels, and that's using the original Steward Telescope, whose 90th birthday we're celebrating in April. In 1962, it was moved from this building right next door up to Kitt Peak. And that telescope is also dedicated to the Space Watch program, and it's looking for near-Earth asteroids as well. So, the University of Arizona, through our Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, is ri- really is one of the nation's leaders in sort of being our planetary, if not defense, but early warning system, yeah. right, for any asteroids that could come close to the Earth. All right, um, I would like to remind you that our next lecture is two weeks from tonight. That would be after spring break. March the 18th at 7.30, it will be Dr. Charlotte Christensen. She's one of our postdocs, postdoctoral fellows here at Stewart Observatory. She studies how galaxies are made, and it will be a talk on the formation and how stars are created in galaxies and why we have galaxies that look different and why they form. Uh, please feel free to visit our 21-inch telescope if you'd like to look at Jupiter or some other interesting objects in the night sky. I will stamp student assignments down here, and let's thank Dr. Sprague one more time.